0: It says, First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received the gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as with the oracles of God, or as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word this evening, we are reminded that there are so many people here that really aren't sure where to even get started when it comes to following you, when it comes to following your calling on their life, and we pray that this message would be helpful, encouraging, uplifting, that we would leave this place bold, that we'd be excited for your name, and that we would have a heart to reach other people. Lord, we know that time is short, and so we just pray that you go before us now as we Dive into your word. Remove all the distractions. Help us to focus on nothing else but you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was your age, actually my freshman year, my very first mission trip was to Hungary. And I didn't, I haven't been back to Hungary since 2004. So I went there twice. But I was very different when I was a freshman, thankfully, by the grace of God. If I was the same person when I was a freshman... That means I would have not matured in, what, 13 years, which is really sad. But here's the thing. When I was 13, 14, and I a mission trip to Hungary, I still vividly remember everyone around the group did all these prayer circles. And they would pray together, and I'd be sitting there, and I was so antsy. To this day, I'm still antsy. Like, if someone is, has this long, drawn-out story that's not going anywhere, I'm, like, tapping my foot. I'm like, you can tell that I'm ready to zone out and just leave. But especially when we were praying, I remember thinking, what's the point of praying for like a half hour? Can't you just pray for five minutes, be done with it, and just move on? That was my attitude, if I'm honest. I really didn't see the point in praying for that period of time. I was thinking, you know, we took a half hour to pray, we could have spent five minutes in prayer, and then 25 minutes going out and evangelizing, reaching people, who knows, all these people around us, but we... We waste our time sitting down here in a circle and praying as if God doesn't hear us. So I don't really know if I had so much faith that I just thought God would listen the first time, or if I was just, which is probably the latter is true, I was very impatient, number one. Number two, I didn't understand the function of prayer. Do you? Do you understand why people would take that much time to pray? How about this one? Why do people fast? Maybe you haven't fasted before. The first time I ever fasted in my life, in terms of fasting a meal, the first time I ever fasted was only two years ago. Up until two years ago, so I lived 25 years of my life never fasting, until I was driven to my knees to a point where I felt like this is so burdensome to me that I don't want to move here until God hears me, until I see things change. So maybe you haven't gotten to that, that place where you feel like you have to fast, give up a meal. Maybe it sounds legalistic. In other words, feel like that's just like a rule that we're, we're trying to appease an angry God. So that's why we sacrifice, you know, we, we deprive ourselves of food or television or cell phones or whatever. That's not the case at all. So then why do we pray? Why do we fast? Why do we get together? Why do we do these things? Well, let's see what 1 Peter says in chapter 4, verse 11. We'll read it again, or verse 7 says, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So Peter is, remember, he's saying, the, I mean, the last teaching we did, he was saying like, haven't you had enough time in the world? It's time to get your butt out of there, leave those things behind, and live for Jesus. And now he, he goes to the next part, which is, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So Peter links two things, the urgency of the the matters around him and the fact that he needs to lift it up to God and the attitude with which you pray. Thinking about that, what does he mean the end of all things is at hand? If I wrote you a letter and I was like, I don't know, dear Lauren Balog, the end of all things is at hand. (laughs) It's like, okay, what does that mean? You're going to think a number of things. Number one, I'm going to die. Maybe I have terminal cancer or something. Uh, number two, I have no idea. I don't know what else you would conclude. Maybe Jesus is coming back. But I wouldn't have that foresight, I guess. So what did Peter the Apostle think when he said the end of all things at hand? Well, scholars think a couple things. They think, number one, maybe Peter was going to die soon. Maybe, maybe he was thinking that there was going to be so much persecution of the Christians that they're all just going to be killed. Maybe he was having the view of the destruction of Jerusalem in mind because around, I believe it's 8070 is when Jerusalem... Uh, started to, to crumble. And so maybe that's what he had in mind, like the temple is going to be destroyed, all those different things. Or maybe he was thinking Jesus is returning soon. However, there's a problem here. It's been 2,000 years and Jesus didn't come back within the span of 2,000 years. So what in the world was he talking about? Well, no matter what he was talking about, this is the one thing that we can apply. Some people believe that it was the return of Jesus and he's just saying, listen, it's, it's coming soon. And because it's coming soon, we have to be expectant. No matter what he was actually thinking in his mind, we can take this universal principle, which is, our earthly time is limited. And since our earthly time is limited, we need to be diligent to make sure that we are doing all that God is calling us to do. All that God is calling us to do. We pray... Because, did you know this? After an event occurs, you can no longer pray for that event. Think about this. God seriously instructs us to pray through the scriptures here. He says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I can't pray anymore that I'm going to make it into the Mason Gross School of Arts. Like I did when I applied back in 2006. I wanted to be an actor. wanted to get into their bachelor's bachelor's of six i wanted to be an actor wanted to get into their bachelor's of fine arts program i didn't get in after i got the letter that says that i'm not accepted i can't pray anymore that i'm going to be accepted why because it's over i can't pray for god to pack out the vertical identity conference after the event is over did you know that like you can't pray for past events it's over You can't pray for someone to receive Jesus after they have died. So thinking about that, there are some things that are prayer time sensitive. And we as Christians should be praying, knowing that our time is limited. So let me ask you this. Have you been praying for specific things beyond just the immediate needs for yourself? Keep me healthy, keep people happy, save people, amen. Or are we actually being articulate about our prayers? Because you see, Peter not only says you should pray often, but be serious and watchful. Now those two words, if you use them, find synonyms, it's being sober-minded and being attentive. So let me put it in in ways that you might understand. Back in my day, I used to play on the Nintendo 64 a game called GoldenEye. And it was perfectly acceptable to do these shooting video games back then because the graphics didn't look like people. Now it's debatable. But back then, I was blameless. So we play this game called GoldenEye. It is so fun. Maybe we can actually have like a retro day and just all the guys can come over my house and all play GoldenEye or something. We used to have land parties. Do you even know what LAN parties are? Those still exist? Okay, good. Just making sure. So when you're playing any of these shooter games, right, You're waiting for the person to come around the corner, whether it's your friend who's in another room, they're playing or whatever. And as you're walking around, you're being sober, you're being attentive. You're ready for that moving target. The minute that shows up, you knock it down. You're ready to take out that person because you're being alert, you're being focused. And you know that there's danger approaching. Now, if you take those two things, sober-mindedness and attentiveness, and you apply it to prayer, this is what happens. You are fully aware That there are demonic forces at work that can only be disrupted by prayer. There are some things that we can probably say, like, you don't need to pray in order for it to happen. Maybe you should, but, like, maybe you've been all this time praying for your food because you're afraid that if you don't pray, it's going to be poisoned. Did you ever pray like that? Like, when you're little, you're praying, Lord, bless the food, because if there's any poison in it, you want it to be eradicated. And you're thinking that you're actually doing something to your food when you pray. But that's not the kind of prayer that we should have. You can eat your food and probably be okay at the end of the day, right? And even if there is poison, it might not necessarily come out just because you prayed. That's why the Jewish people, they pray after the meal. It's kind of like a modern day Christian thing to pray before the meal. That's besides the point. But there are some things that can only go away and only be uh, pushed back by asking God to intervene. In other words, think about this. When Peter, I mean, not Peter, but it could have been Peter, the disciples were trying to cast out a demon. And they were saying, Lord, why can't we cast it out? What did Jesus say? This only comes out by prayer and by fasting. Wow, so you have a tool that can push back the forces of darkness that nothing else can. Listen, Joe Fisher, he's pretty buff. But it doesn't matter how many weights he lifts he will not be able to fight off a demon. Like, we're not going to see on the UFC, UFC 200, like there's a demon versus Conor McGregor. You're not going to see that. Why? Because there are some battles that can only be won through uh, prayer, through God intervening. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That was, that was totally a non, non-intended pun, by the way. I just put the verse there. I didn't mean to put the UFC reference, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So think about this. I mean, have you ever had those days where just everything goes wrong? Absolutely nothing goes right. It's almost like you have have psychic abilities and you can predict when things are going to go bad next. You're like driving on Route 9 and you're like, you know, this is a terrible day. That person's going to cut me off. There they go. (laughs) You just know. It's like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to be grounded for something stupid. You get home, you're like, yep, I knew this was coming. This is my life. Could it be that it's more than just your parents decided to ground you, more than just you're upset at your friend, this happened, that happened? Could it be that there are spiritual forces at work? Now, I could be wrong. Maybe it really is you did something stupid and you deserve to be grounded. Maybe it really was the fact that there was a person who was just, you know, a homicidal maniac and he cut you off from Route 9. It's possible. But what I found out is there are times that I'm just irritable for absolutely no reason. And perhaps that is the spiritual forces at work trying to disrupt me from the ministry that's right in front of me. Maybe you're having a bad day. And if you just took the time to pray and say, Lord, I don't really know what's going on, but if there's anything you know, spiritually weird, I just pray in the name of Jesus, you just move that away. Lord, if, if there's anything in my heart that you just remove that, when you pray like that, suddenly your joy returns. Like, wow, I guess that was a spiritual battle. You don't know until you do pray. You won't know if the weapons that you have right now are the only weapons you have until you use all the weapons. In other words, yes, you could probably solve it with your brain. Yes, you could probably solve it by picking things up and like using what God has given you, but perhaps it's a spiritual battle. And if it's a spiritual battle, it will not be solved until you find a spiritual solution. There'll be times that you're depressed. And listen, I'm not saying that all depression comes from spiritual attacks. There could be chemical imbalances, that, that's very true. And we believe in modern medicine, God uses doctors. But if it's a spiritual attack, you won't know unless you pray. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? But oftentimes, we don't see the fruit immediately when we pray, and therefore, we lose heart when we pray. Instead, think about this. If faith is the substantiating of things that you can't see... Prayer is the immediate application of exercising your faith. When I pray, since I don't see immediate results, I'm exercising faith that there is a real God in heaven that really hears me. And when I pray, even though I can't see it immediately, I know for a fact something has happened. And that's how God desires his people to pray to him, to come to him, that we would call upon him, that we would be attentive in our prayer. That you and I, we would be like we're playing a first-person shooter game. We are, looking, we are looking for those spiritual enemies, and we're ready to take them down the minute that we see them. And when we're on a mission trip, we do this all the time. Like you're, you're upset at somebody, and you say, you know what, let's stop and pray, because maybe this is a spiritual attack. The worst that happens is you're wrong, and you just keep on fighting. But if it is a spiritual attack, then you want to make sure that you remove that so that God can move. When the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane, with Jesus, he told them what? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew chapter 26 verse 21. It's possible that you might fall into temptation. You might stumble because you haven't found the way of escape that God has provided through prayer. It could be that you are up late on your computer and you know for a fact like you shouldn't be on that late, you shouldn't be chatting that girl, you shouldn't be on that website and you fall into temptation because you don't watch and pray. It's not a coincidence that that pop-up ad jumps on your computer. It's not a coincidence like, I mean, oftentimes I'll be studying for whatever and then people are just distracting me. Things come in and it's just like, obviously this would happen when I'm trying to do something for the Lord. In fact, some of the times that you're the most on fire for God is when Satan tries to take you down because you're a threat to his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. So prayer should be our first course of action before we do anything else. And so Peter kind of starts off this new section in the book by first saying, I'm going to give you some things to do, some things to think about, how you can contribute to the life of the church. But before I do that, the first thing you got to do is pray. Not the last thing. Your first course of action should be prayer. Because if you go about God's kingdom using your flesh, it's all going to crumble. You need spiritual power to do spiritual things. If you have a spiritual gift, guess what you need? Spiritual power. Where does that power come from? It comes from above And through prayer. So he says in verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. What does this verse remind you of? Just kind of like face value. Does it remind anyone of anything? He says, above all things, in other words, if there's one thing you can't miss, this is the most important, above everything else I've written so far, have fervent love fervent, visible, unmistakable, love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of John chapter 21, when Peter and Jesus are together, and Jesus asks Peter what three times? Do you love me? He asks him, and each time Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And people believe that he was asked that three times because remember, he denied Jesus three times. And so thinking about this, here's Peter directly saying, listen, I know what it's like to mess up. I know what it's like to sin. And fervent love for one another is what covers those sins. Of course, the the love that Jesus had for us on the cross covers all of our sins. But when you love somebody else, When you're showing love to somebody else, not only are your faults covered because you're doing your best and you're showing, you're like apologizing, you're coming up to that person, listen, I love you, but it allows you to forgive somebody else when they wrong you. Does that make sense? Like when I have fervent love for my friend, like Josh Evans, if Josh punched me in the face, it was kind of messed up and uh, I would not retaliate because I'm very holy. But if you punch me in the face, if I have fervent love for Josh, I actually really care about him, which I do, then the love is going to cover that sin. And that's how Christians should act with one another. And if we are showing love to one another, Josh can be like, if he's showing love, then when he makes those mistakes, he's going to be covering that up. He's going to be trying to make it up to me. He'll, he might buy me chocolate or whatever it is, hopefully, if he knows me. That's how the church should be functioning, that we love one another. And so he gives us some things that we can do. He says in verse uh, verse 9, he says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's the first thing he says. Be hospitable to one another. In other words, show hospitality, show kindness to one another without grumbling. But why would he say that? Well, he says that because as you're living in community with one another, you have close proximity. You're with each other. I mean, you're in school together. You see each other every day. You're going to have to show kindness. You're going to have to share food. But here's the thing. If you've ever shown kindness to somebody, once in a while, they take advantage of it, don't they? Do you you have that friend in your life that always asks to borrow money from you for lunch, for whatever? Hey, can you pick me up? Hey, can you give me a ride? Hey, just always asks. And then, in an outburst of anger, out of nowhere, they say things like, you don't even care about me. are like, really? <laughs> How about all those times I've given you money? What happened to those times? Like, well, you just had to because you're a Christian. Like, hopefully they don't say that. But I know what that's like. Maybe you know what that's like. And when that happens, the first thing you do is what? You grumble. You complain, after all I've done for them, really? Like, you're not going to remember any of those times I cared for you? Like, you were sick? I brought you chicken soup to your house? Like, I don't, I don't you were in prison and I visited you? <laughs> and suddenly, like, people forget these things, right? But here's another thing. There's a big difference. I was listening to a message by a guy named John Marcomer. He was saying that there's a huge difference between friends and family. You have your friends, people that you really get along with, same personality, whatever. But then you have your family, the people you can't choose. But you love them anyway. Your brothers, your sisters, sometimes you can't stand them. But you love them, don't you? You only have one or two or 14 if you have 14 siblings, I guess. But we are to love one another because that is exactly how Christians should act because that's what God did for us, right? God showed us love even though we were unlovable, filthy, sinful beings. God didn't love us because we were special, because we were cool, because we were popular. He loved us because He chose to make us into beautiful creations, works of art each one that is gifted. And that's why he says in the next verse, as each one has received the gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Okay, we have a lot of different points that we can take in this packed verse. We're gonna read the verse again and then I'll just explain the points, things that you might wanna write down because this is a really, really powerful verse. As each one has received a gift, Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here's the first point. There are no functionless parts of the body of Christ. There are no functionless parts of the body of Christ. It says here, everyone, each one, has received a gift. That word gift is charisma. We'll get to that in a second. Usually when you think of gift, you don't think of charisma. Charisma sounds like energy, passion, excitement. We'll understand that in two seconds. But first, you need to understand that you have a gift that God has imparted to you. And some of you, pay attention now, some of you feel like the spiritual appendix. Because you're just there. People really don't know why you're there. But you're there. And the only time that people even really notice you is when you cause pain in the body. And then you explode everywhere. Actually, here's a good point, though. They actually found a function for the appendix a couple years ago. They believe that the appendix is a part where it stores the good bacteria, so when you have, like, a stomach virus or whatever, and you deplete yourself of all the good bacteria in your body, it sends them over so that you can replenish those good bacteria and digest food and all that stuff. So, function for the appendix. And there's a function for you! (laughs) The fact of the matter is, God has imparted a gift to each and every one of you. There are no talentless people in God's community. There are no people who is like, God's designing people. He's like, oh, this one's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to design this one. They're going to be used mightily for the kingdom of God. And, oh, I got nothing left for you. I'm sorry. And they just, well, I'll use leftovers. And there you go. And you make something happen. God doesn't act that way with his children because he cares about each and every one. The real problem is that most people have no idea what their gifts are. Right? It's not so much that you're a useless person. It's just you have no idea what your use is. So if I asked you to name some spiritual gifts, what would you say? What would you say? Why don't we just, by a show of hands, raise your hand, and you name some spiritual gifts. Anybody? Yes. You said physical therapy? I didn't hear that. Facial therapy? Okay. Spiritual gifts, what would you say? Okay, counsel people. Anybody else? Yes. Teaching? Yes. Encouragement? Huh? Healing? Yes. What's that? Music? Discernment? Yes. Worship? Yes. What's that? Leading. Okay. Here's the thing. Most people, a few exceptions even in that crowd that we just asked, most people convict, confuse gifts with personality traits. A lot of people confuse a spiritual gift with just your character. Like you are an encouraging person or you're a compassionate person. Or you have the gift of teaching, and that person's a leader, and, and that's what they think a spiritual gift is. But a spiritual gift is so much more than those things. That could be, but Wayne Grudem, who's a commentator, says, a spiritual gift or charisma is any talent or ability which is empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to be used in the ministry of the church. When the Bible talks about spiritual gifts, the list is never exhaustive. How do we know that? Because the 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 list of gifts differ in different places. And so what he's saying is not, and these are the only gifts that you can receive from the Spirit. If you think about it, the word charisma uh, denotes something completely different than what we're used to. When we think of a spiritual gift or think of personality trait, charisma is energy, right? Passion, excitement. So it's more so of what are you excited about in the kingdom of God? That What drives you? What is something that you see lacking in the community and what do you want to impart to the community? doesn't mean you have to be the best at it, but oftentimes that's how you find out what your gift is. It's just by getting, getting your hands dirty and going and just working to bless other people. And so this list is actually very, ex- ex- um, very expansive. You can have all kinds of different spiritual gifts. You can have more than one. And it doesn't have to be these personality traits and feel like, oh, if I'm an introvert, then I can't be gifted. Of course you can. You can be a writer. And can you be a writer that's filled with the Spirit and do it to the glory of God? Of course. Something really interesting is, back when they were designing the temple in the Old Testament, it said that the Holy Spirit imparted gifts to the artisans. The people that were designing the temple were empowered by the Holy Spirit to make beautiful art. Could it be that art, being a talented artist, could be a spiritual gift? Of course. If it's a gift and it's empowered by the Spirit, of course it can. The question is, who are you using it for? Are you using it for the Lord or are you using it for yourself? Because there are no functionless parts of the body of Christ. He wants each and every one of us to be different and to be doing other things for each other, to bless each other. So the real question I would ask is, not what is your spiritual gift, but what drives you? Where do you get your energy? What is the one thing that when you do it, it just feels like you were created to do it? Because it's quite possible that that one thing that drives you could be a gift that God has imparted to you. The question is, are you using that gift for yourself or for other people? I listened to a message by this pastor named Tim chaddick uh, a number of years ago when I was in college, and he told everyone in the congregation. he says, guess what? I'm going to tell each and every one of you what your spiritual gift is. Each and every one of you will know exactly what your gift is by the end of the, uh, of the teaching today. So I was like on the edge of my seat, like, oh, great, I'll finally figure out what I'm good at. And he says, all right, here it is. If you're single, the Bible says it's a gift. If you're married, it says it's a gift. So go ahead, use your gift. It's like, what the heck does that mean? Use my singleness. Bah humbug. <laughs> But it's interesting because the Bible actually does say that. Did you know that? The Bible says that it's a gift from God to be single and it's a gift from God to be married. And it uses that same word, charisma. Because there are certain things that you can do while you're single that you can't do while you're married. When you're single, you don't have to worry about your family, kids, taking care of your wife or your husband. You can just be focused on the Lord and his kingdom. When you're married, it doesn't mean that you're, like, not about God's kingdom, but there are certain responsibilities you have to take care of first. You can't be at the church 24-7 like I am sometimes. You can't be, you know, so invested going from trip to trip like I do sometimes, like going to Hungary, going to England, going Like, you can't do that. You need to take care of your family. You to raise kids. Like, if you were a musician, it's really hard to raise a family while being on tour all the time. It just is. Now, that doesn't mean it's better... Paul says, I wish everyone was single like me. Like the verse in the Bible, you try not to read to jinx everything, you know. It's like, oh, I don't want to read that verse. Wish you all were like me. Like, no! But when you're married, there's a lot of things you can do that you can't do while you're single, which is why people get married, obviously. It's a gift. The point is, be content with what God has given you now. There's so many people that are always looking to tomorrow... They don't think about the fact that God is giving you a gift that you can use right now. Listen, everyone look up here. You don't have to wait till you're an adult to start using the gifts that God has given you. If you feel like God is stirring you up to teach others, you don't need a pulpit to do that. Maybe that day will come, but you can go over and teach other people. If you feel like God is giving you a gift of music and you're not fully there yet, but start practicing. If you feel like God is giving you a gift and it's in sports, like use that to bless other people. Don't wait around as if that day is going to come in 10 years because God wants to use each and every one of us today. Number two, second point about this. Parts of the body exist to aid the rest of the body. Remember, we are the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are his body. And parts of the body exist to aid the rest of the body. If I have an itch on my right hand, guess what? If it's on the back of my hand, I can't scratch that itch with my right hand. I needed another part of the body to aid it. Just like hearing gives your entire body balance, parts of the body exist to aid the rest of the body, and we are to use the gifts that we have to minister to one another. Back when I was really into music, acting, photography, all those different things, each and every one of those things, I really believe for a while, they became an idol. Pastor Lloyd says this all the time. Your gifts can either be an idol or can be a tool. Do you worship it or do you use it to worship God, to the glory of God? And so there was a time when I remember, once again, listening to a message. He was talking about, like, "Do you want to know how, whether or not your gift has become an idol? This one question. If you were to lose that thing, would you be devastated? Would you feel like you've lost your identity, a part of who you are? If God just closed the door, if he took it away from you, that's how you can tell whether you put an unhealthy emphasis on a good thing God has given you. A relationship? That's a great way to tell if you have put too much emphasis into a relationship that you've made that other person into an idol. What happens if you break up? Are you devastated? Do you lose a part of who you are? Is it a gifting? Is it music? Like if God said you will never play music, would that be the worst thing to you? And what's funny about that is before I heard this message, I was talking to one of my friends and we were talking about because I wanted to be a musician and I've been playing in a band for a while, I was ready to just give up everything else, go on tour and whatever. And I remember telling a friend of mine, I was like, you know, if God told me that I want you to work a nine-to-five office job and not do music, I would be okay. I would do it, but I would be devastated. The next day is when I heard that message, and he says, will you be devastated? I went, no. <laughs> but here's what's really interesting. I have way more fun using music now than I did back then. Why? Because I've taken those things and now they become tools. Now I can hang, hang out with you guys and like you can come over to my house. We can record songs for fun. And it doesn't have to do, it doesn't have to become anything. I don't have to like sell record labels or sell records or be on a label. I don't have to do any of those things. I can just have fun and use it to bless other people. And if I can teach people how to act and we can invent a skit like we did. And if we can take photos and people love the photos and like that's fun. And I don't have to make that into who I am. But the more time you invest into something, the more that that thing takes a larger equation of your life, doesn't it? Because you've invested so much time into it. And as this thing grows with all the time that you're investing into it, now you start figuring out like, where does this play a role into my identity? Is this who I am? This thing that I've labored, this thing that I've, I've just tried and, you know, was striving towards to, to complete, is this thing a part of who I am? you always have to remember that those gifts are there to bless other people, not for yourself. And I remember, um, well, let me read you this quote first. So R.C. Sproul says, Maybe you do not have a vocation to be an evangelist or a missionary. Maybe you have not been called in to preach or to sing in the choir. Every one of us, however, is called to make sure that the ministry of evangelism is done, that the ministries of preaching and teaching are accomplished, and that the ministry of worship occurs, and that the ministry, mini, missionary enterprise is accomplished. We might not be the ones who go, but how can God use our gifts to make all the church ministries effective? So here's the great thing is, what we're supposed to be doing is working together to make sure all of our gifts are used. If you don't feel like a missionary, guess what? You can still support a missionary. You don't have to wait till you're an adult and you have a full-time job to start tithing. We know from the Bible that God does not care about the amount of money that you give. That's not the point. What matters is, how much does it cost you? Because that's what God sees, and that's what God blesses. Faith, people that trust God with their finances. And so we're all to be working together to make sure that each and every one of us is using our gifts. You're forming a band. You're, like, helping each other out. You're encouraging one another, stirring one another up. You see a gift in somebody else, you say, you're really great at that. And when you do that, you really come alive. That's the way we should be functioning. Here's the next point. Ready? Our gifts have been entrusted to us by the giver. Our gifts have been entrusted to us by the giver. In other words, we have to be good stewards of the gift that we have received. We know that's what the verse says. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If someone bought you a brand new car, maybe a parent, they just said, hey, we really want to bless you. We got you a brand new Corvette. Like, awesome, that's cool. You get this brand new Corvette, and then immediately day one, you're like, man, I would love to go to McDonald's right now with my Corvette. Wouldn't that be funny to drive through the drive through and people are like, well, you're 17, and you have a Corvette. And so I do it. And then they're like, here you go. And like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I spilled all over your car. Like, oh, forget about it, it's fine. It was free. And then before you know it, by the next week, you have dirty laundry in there. You got ketchup all over the seats. All the seats are torn like animals were in your car and tore everything up. And there's a homeless guy living in the trunk somehow in your Corvette. (laughs) Wouldn't you go home, your father, your mother sees you and is just like, what did you do? With the beautiful car that I've entrusted to you. Like, well, you gave it to me, so like I figure I could do whatever I want with it. No. When someone entrusts you with something that expensive and that precious, the best thing you can do is take care of it and use it in a way that appreciates the person who gave it to you. You're washing it, you're waxing it, you're, you're treating it in a manner that's respecting the person who gave it to you. It's the same way with our gifts. When God gives you a gift, you better use it. So I'm not just saying, like, figure out what your gift is in five years and pray about it and then start serving. I'm saying, like, you have a responsibility right now. If you have a gift right now, you are required to use it right now to the glory of God. I remember um, I had a conversation with a pastor. Because Chuck Smith, who started the Calvary Chapel movement, he used to always say, like, if you want to be a pastor... He would ask them this question, like, do you see yourself being able to do anything else besides be a pastor? Because if you could see yourself being anything else other than a pastor, then you should do that instead of being a pastor. Because being a pastor is only for people that could literally do nothing else. Like, they are sold in, they're bought in, they're passionate, like, yeah. And so, working here at the church for a number of years, not being ordained, I remember talking to one of the pastors on staff, and I was like, "I, I know that quote, and I just feel like I can do a lot of things. I could totally be a musician. I could be a professor at, you know, a university, like, and i would be fine. I don't have to be a pastor. I, I never asked to be a pastor. They hired me. And to be honest, I, there are times that it can be overwhelming. And so I told him that. And he said, yeah, but the question is not could you see yourself doing other things, but is God calling you to be a pastor? Because if God is calling you, guess what? you will be walking away from what God wants you to do. So don't ask yourself, could I see myself doing other things? But the question is, is God calling me to do this? Because if he is, then you're walking away from what God is calling you to do. And so when he said that, I was like, "Ah, oh, darn. I guess I'll be a pastor. <laughs> what was really funny about that is I'm so glad I made that decision. I'm so glad I resolved that in my mind. Because it doesn't matter what your gift is. It doesn't have to be being a pastor. If you're a musician, there will be plenty of times you are frustrated with your band members, with the songs that you're writing. You just feel like quitting. Each and every vocation you have has a plateau. Well, you're an artist. You've been working on this painting forever, and you're like, this is garbage. You're doing whatever it is that you're doing, and you feel like you've hit a wall. But when it's your charisma and it's your passion, it's the thing that drives you, it's the thing that God has gifted you with, you can endure past that point because you know this is God's calling. It's not your calling. You didn't ask yourself to be an artist, musician. You didn't ask yourself to be a doctor, pharmacist, architect. It's God who called you to do that wherever you're called. So you using that gift is not up to you. It's up to God. So you being obedient allows you to get past that plateau so you can soar to a new height. That's all I'm saying. So he says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, then all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if you're going to speak, use it with God's power. If you're going to minister, use it with God's ability. This is so important because oftentimes people are trying, as we said before, to do the things of the Spirit. Without the Spirit. But if God is calling you to do something that He wants you to do, you don't have to worry about like where you're gonna find the resources, where you're gonna find the ability, where you're gonna find the talent, because it's God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Another commentator, David Gusick, who's a pastor, says The idea is that if we are bad stewards of the manifold grace of God, it is as if that grace was given to us in vain. That grace is wasted because it only comes to us and doesn't move through us. So we have a stewardship to be faithful where we're at. So be faithful. Be faithful where you're at in the small things. Maybe you don't see what's going to happen in five years, and that's okay. But did you know that David, King David, before he was slaying giants, he was killing bears and lions, And sometimes you have to be faithful in the small things before God gives you charge over many things. This is what God calls us to do, is is not worry about the future, but worry about what does he call me to do today. Maybe, just maybe, you have to be content in your singleness before you can be content in your marriage. Have you ever thought about that? Like once you get married, it's not like you cross the finish line and then you're set for life and like, I'm just happy. I'm just happy I'm married. I couldn't believe anyone would ever marry me, but I'm here, across the finish line. You have to be faithful where you're at, where God is calling you. So what are you doing for the glory of God? As Pastor Lloyd said once, what on earth are you doing for Christ's sake? <laughs> I, th- I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> One last thing in conclusion tonight. Um, I was reading in my devotions two days ago, Acts chapter 16. Paul the Apostle, you probably know the story if you're a Christian and you've been in the church for a while, grew up in the church, whatever. Paul the Apostle is locked up in prison because he's preaching the gospel like he always does. He's in prison and he starts singing hymns with his friend. And then there's an earthquake in the middle of the night. And so the doors swing open and whatever. And then there's a prison guard there who wakes up afterwards thinks everyone escaped, and is about to kill himself. And now he's like, oh my gosh, I let everybody leave. I was sleeping on a job, this is, and he's, he's about to kill himself. And then Paul says, hey, don't worry, we didn't leave. We're still here. And so the prison guard's like blown away, like, what the heck? You didn't escape? So he invites Paul and his friend over his house, and that the prison guard, he gets saved, his whole family gets saved, they get baptized, and then Paul gets set free afterwards. And so looking at that story, this is what I got from it. Here was a literal open door, clear open door. And if Paul was looking at it through uh, the eyes of the flesh, he could have just been like, wow, God literally just opened a door, miraculously did things with an earthquake, and now he wants me to escape. If he evaluated by man's standards, he could have thought that quite easily. But he would have missed out on the awesome opportunity that was hidden right where he was. And by him listening to the voice of God and remaining where he was, even though there was a clear open door, he was able to see the fruit in this person getting saved. Not every open door has God on the other side calling you through. Sometimes God wants you to be diligent right where you're at before he calls you on to the next thing. And so I just feel like that might be a word for some of you because you're always looking to the future. Not asking yourself, what does God have you to do now? You might feel like you're in prison, like you're chained up. Like, I'm not able to be who I am. And then someone sees something in you that's over there in California over there in Georgia or whatever. And they're like, oh, yes, all we need is a person like you. And things are frustrating here. Maybe you're upset. Maybe you're just like, I don't know. Just things are mundane. But oftentimes, God wants us to be faithful in the small things before he calls us to big things. So ask yourself, not, not what does God have for me in the future, but what does God have for me today? Vertical Identity Conference is next week. Friday is our big outreach. Saturday is going to be some practical workshop. It's going to be awesome. We have a, a model that's coming uh, Saturday morning for the ladies. She's uh, in the fashion district in New York City. She's going to be speaking on being a Christian in the model industry. So that's going to be awesome for you ladies, along with Karen Pulley and Jen Miller and stuff. Friday night is going to be the huge outreach that we're doing. We're really praying that people come. My worry is, will there be any unbelievers there? Because that's one of my concerns. Like, we have this awesome message. Kevin Miller actually texted me two days ago, and he said, I had 24 pages of notes for this message that I'm doing Friday night, and I felt like it just wasn't what God wanted me to say. And I literally felt like God downloaded an entire different message onto my brain. He said, I've never had that experience in my life. He says, your prayers are working, you know, which is, goes back to prayer, right? We got to be praying. So I'm not asking for you to just like work up all the courage and go out evangelizing and like see that person in the mall, see that person in your neighbor and just like try really hard. I'm saying two things. Number one, pray. Pray that God would draw out unbelieving people. Pray that God would use you and then give you the power to invite those people. That's what I would say. That you start off by saying, I want to take off some time from my day to see something awesome happen next Friday night. Because as we talked about last week, we can have 600 people in a room and they all be Christians and be like, oh, successful outreach. But were we diligent? Was I saying, here am I, Lord, send me? Use me. I want to see what you can do through a person who's just submitted to your will. Amen? Let's pray.